You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are restarting our conversation on waterfowl harvest management, the history of waterfowl harvest management in North America. We are again joined by our two guests from the previous episode, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. Uh, we thank them for their time again and all their expertise they're going to bring to this conversation. When we left off the previous episode, we had we were about 1913, 1915, you might say, on the calendar. We were talking about the Weeks-McLean Act as the first law that was instituted in the U.S. to protect migratory birds, prohibit market hunting, uh, spring hunting, and other things of the like. But there were some constitutional challenges being made by the states on that particular piece of legislation. And so the, the forward-looking conservationists of the day began to devise additional ways of, of accomplishing what they saw as absolutely essential for sustaining in perpetuity for the benefit of future generations, the migratory bird populations that we, uh, that we so enjoy and that were, that were being depleted at the, at the turn of the century. They saw a need for some bold action. They took bold action. They were, uh, as again, I say, some very visionary leaders. And, uh, you know, I'll take this time to say we all owe them a debt of gratitude for their perseverance in, uh, in seeking solutions to the overharvest, the unregulated harvest and exploitation of migratory birds and, and other wildlife back in the day. So with that, Dale and Ken, we're going to pick up here. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Let's see, Ken, I want to go to you first off with this. As I introduced here, we, we're 
we're at the era where the migrant or where the Weeks McLean Act was being challenged. What was the solution that our that those visionary leaders came up with? Well, uh, you know, Dale made reference to it in the in the last episode, but it was looking for a solution that could very clearly give the U.S. government authority to manage and regulate the harvest of migratory birds. And there was a decision made that uh, because of the treaty-making authority that had been vested in the U.S. Senate, that possibly establishment of a treaty would be the way to make this move forward. So discussions began uh, in 1913 and continued on for a few years between the United States and and Canada. Well, actually, it was between the United States and the United Kingdom, because at that time, Canada was controlled by the United Kingdom in terms of establishing a treaty between those two countries that would give the federal authorities in those countries uh, the responsibility for managing uh, all migratory birds. Uh, and in 2000 or in 1916, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom entered into a convention between the United States and, and Great Britain on behalf of Canada that uh, led to the development of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I've learned a lot doing my own research and talking to you guys leading up to this particular recording about the, the Migratory Bird Convention, the Migratory Bird Treaty that it produced, and then the Migratory Bird Treaty Act itself, and you know, the constitutional grounds upon which some of these things really, really stood. And so that's something that I really want to explore because uh, others may not be aware of it as well. Uh, I want to shed a bit of additional light on that. The treaty-making authority of the United States is really where this rests. So, Ken, unpack that a little bit. There are a lot of historical documents that that speak to this, especially when we get into a challenge of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But what was the basis for that? You know, the, we've talked about the challenges to the Weeks-McLean Act, and now here we are with the Migratory Bird Convention, the Migratory Bird Treaty. W- what was that really rooted in, the idea that treaty-making power is kind of uh, uh, supreme in, in some respects? Well, I think it was a realization that uh, – uh, migratory birds, including waterfowl, were a shared resource, uh, not among states as we had looked at it for years, but it was truly a shared resource between two countries in, in North America at that time. That's the way it was looked at. And uh, it was a matter of trying to very clearly define what that authority was. And uh, as part of the discussions that led to this act, uh, uh, the two countries agreed on what the definition of the migratory bird resources were, and all of these were listed. More importantly, from the standpoint of waterfowl and waterfowl hunting, uh, it defined which species are actually migratory game birds and which actually can be hunted. And that treaty also uh, established a period of time during which there would be no hunting of, of migratory birds the migratory game birds, and that was between March the 10th and the 1st of September. Uh, and it also declared that there were certain species of waterfowl that uh, were not allowed to be to be harvested even during the open seasons. Uh, special protection was given to wood ducks. Uh, uh, many people today uh, would have it be hard to believe, find it hard to believe that uh, wood ducks' numbers were greatly uh, 
greatly uh, challenged during this time of this period of time. A big part of that probably had to do because of their beautiful feathers, and they were not only hunted for market, but they were also hunted for uh, for their feathers. It also prohibited uh, the taking of nests, the taking of eggs, and many things that had been part of of the use of this migratory bird resource for many years. One of the things that I found fascinating was initially it was perplexing and it was frustrating because I was looking at the Migratory Bird Treaty Act language, which we will kind of get to in more detail here later on. Uh, I was looking for some of some language in it and various versions of it. It's been amended through the years. And I went back to the very first language and tried to find exactly what it said. And I was looking for those dates that you referenced, the closed date, the closed season. There would be no um, hunting allowed on on migratory game birds between March 10th and September 1st. And I kept looking for those dates in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. They don't appear in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. They appear in the actual treaty itself, the Convention for the Protection of Migratory Birds. And I think that was the first time I realized that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was the process by which this treaty was was ratified uh, in the U.S. Uh, another act was was used in Canada to ratify this treaty. But that's a little nugget that I was not aware of. Those dates and some of the other specific regulations that you mentioned are contained in the treaty itself and not necessarily uh, recited word for word in the in the act. So uh, that was that was a bit of a revelation for me. Uh, that's right, Mike, and I, I apologize for the confusion. And sometimes I do find myself uh, using those terms interchangeable, and that's not that's not correct. The Migratory Bird Treaty was a a convention between uh, Canada and the United States, and then each of those countries, the United States in 1916 and Canada in 1917, actually ratified this treaty and through their own actions within their uh, specific federal government. But that's a, a good point to lay out. And again, that's the, that's the framework within which the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in the U.S. and the Migratory Act that was taken in Canada a year later were based. Ken, I don't know that you said anything incorrectly. I just wanted to, I just wanted to share with the listeners that I'd learned something <laughs> as a result of all this research. Something that had frustrated frustrated me for the longest time. I'm like, where are those dates? And then finally, I go back to the original document itself. There they are, and some of the other regulations in there are. It's remarkable to think of the the bold nature of this of the action that was being taken back in those days. So uh, anyway, just wanted to reference that, Dale. Uh, let's go to you now. And so we have this the the convention was the you know meeting we might say by which this treaty was agreed upon. Uh, but then there was a something in some language in that treaty that required each country to, or the, the agreement was that each country would then ratify the treaty to enable its federal enforcement. Talk about that a little bit with us, Dale. I think that's a really good point, Mike. Um, you know, the key elements of the agreement were those things that Ken mentioned, uh, the prohibition on taking nests and eggs and the period of a closed season and so on. But the, the primary key point from the convention was that the partners agreed to take measures to implement the treaty. Uh, point being, uh, that's where the work starts. You know, the key elements are certainly in the in the other part of that convention. But then, then it said, now you have to go back home and put the measures in place to make sure that we're able to, in fact, enact this piece of uh, this treaty, if you will. 
in many respects, it enacted or reenacted uh, the Weeks-McLean Act, but it made it even stricter than what that earlier piece of legislation was. And uh, so that's where the key elements are in the Migratory Bird Treaty itself, is that uh, with regard to uh, unless and except as permitted, the taking, killing, or possessing of waterfowls unlawful. So essentially what that says is that until we say it's okay, it's not okay. Closed until open. It identified when and how migratory birds may be taken or killed. And so for over the next decade or so plus, um, and even into today, the nature in which people could take birds was identified through revisiting regulations and established amendments and so on over time. So it's really important to understand that. The Migratory Bird Treaty then also established the nature of how birds could be transported or imported. It reiterated uh, the Lacey Act in terms of, of transportation of birds taken illegally. It identified enforcement responsibility with regard to the Migratory Bird Convention. Okay, whose responsibility is it for enforcing it? And what's the nature of penalties that would be imposed in the event of, of enforcement issues? It identified that states can be more restrictive, but not more liberal than the elements established within the treaty or by the federal partners. Um, so it was really important, I believe, that, that once the framework was established in the convention, that the partners went back and did the hard work necessary to define the methods by which bird could be taken, when, where, how, whose responsibility and the like. I'm going to come back to the actual convention of the Migratory Bird Treaty itself. Uh, there are numerous aspects of this that I that I do find uh, fascinating, you might say. Uh, and part of this is, again, as I entered, said a few minutes ago, is because I had never seen the language of the treaty itself. I'd always just referred to the language in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Uh, or if I had seen the language in the treaty itself, I had forgotten it. But as Ken talked about, it defines which species fall under these different categories. Uh, or I shouldn't say – in some cases it's species, but in other cases it's, it's you know broad categories of birds – Migratory game birds, which are obviously a lot of our waterfowl, rails, shorebird, a uh, few shorebirds. Actually, there were some shorebirds in here identified. Uh, yeah, woodcock and snipe and other things of that nature. And then migratory insectivorous birds. That's another thing that that was pretty front and center with regard to you know the importance of migratory birds as a resource and the the function they perform in helping to control insects uh, across our, our country at the time they were they were viewed as very beneficial for for um, tr controlling some of the insect populations that were harmful to agricultural interest of the day and it identifies the specific groups of birds that fall into that category. That's a lot of your passerines, your chickadees, kinglets, warblers, and so forth. And then other migratory non-game birds, which are going to be a lot of the long-legged wading birds, grebes and gulls and herons. And so it lays out all of these different groups of birds specifically, uh, which it, again, I, I find very interesting that it goes to that level to define them. One of the things that was interesting that I did not know, and we will touch on this sometime later on, is that the Migratory Bird Treaty between the U.S. and Canada does not identify cormorants, the, the group of the family of birds into which cormorants fall as one of the, uh, one of the groups protected by, uh, by this treaty. Uh, now, I did learn that subsequent 
amendment to, or subsequent, yeah, subsequent amendment to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act actually did include cormorants as a, and their family as a protected, uh, protected group. But that's another thing that I was not aware of back in the day. Uh, we have, we've talked about the, the treaty itself. We've talked about, then introduced the, uh, the, the need to pass some legislation to actually enact it. Ken, anything that you want to add here at this point with regard to the treaty itself or how we got to the point of needing to pass some legislation to enforce it? Well, uh, I might just add that uh, while this uh, initial treaty was between the United States and, and Great Britain on behalf of Canada, the Migratory Bird Treaty has been expanded to include other countries that, from the standpoint of waterfowl, uh, at least from a hunting standpoint, Mexico became a very important uh, signator to this treaty in 1936. Interestingly enough, there are some migratory birds that we share with Japan and uh, and Russia. Uh, and in, in, in 1972, the treaty was expanded to incorporate Japan and then in 1976 with Russia. So I think it's important to point out that while this began as a kind of a North American issue, it has become uh, intercontinental in its in its scope. Yeah, and if my understanding is correct, it would have been that amendment that brought in Mexico that was responsible for bringing cormorants under the, under the protection of, of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and uh, uh, – Learn all sorts of neat things as you dig into the deep. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Details of this. So Dale... Let's talk about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, specifically, when did that get passed? What kind of effort was required to get it passed? And then uh, it, uh, you've kind of already introduced this a little bit, but then what happened? So we have the treaty, then we have some legislation that comes into effect to enforce it. 
but that's not the end of the story, is it? Uh, no. Um, and perhaps under the heading, and then the fight started, uh, might be appropriate <laughs> here. Um, yeah. You know, the, as, as we discussed earlier, um, this was during an era where people were pretty much used to making their own decisions within a state. And the Migratory Bird Convention and ultimately the treaty kind of flew in the face of people's perception of, of their responsibility as an individual state. And so it's no surprise that the Migratory Bird Treaty, once passed, was almost immediately challenged. Um, and, uh, you know, we're uh, from the state of Missouri uh, in terms of much of our professional career. So uh, the 1920 Missouri versus Holland um, Supreme Court decision uh, really um, is, is uh, relevant to, to us here and, and of course, uh, to everybody else that relies on this piece of uh, on this treaty as the framework for waterfowl harvest management. And it was challenged at that point in time um, uh, because some folks in Missouri decided they'd go ahead and push the envelope a bit. I don't know if you want to talk about the details necessarily, but the, the point is that a federal agent in Missouri uh, apprehended the attorney general and four of his friends hunting uh, near Nevada, Missouri. They had a bag of 76 ducks and uh, actually uh, Attorney General uh, McAllister uh, compounded his problems by giving a false name as he was arrested. They in turn turned the tables um, on by, by arresting uh, Agent Holland uh, for possessing birds without a hunting license. Uh, that was ultimately dropped. But the point being, this brought up this whole issue of state versus federal responsibility the constitutionality of the Migratory Bird Treaty, um, and that's what brought it to the Supreme Court. Um, in the Supreme Court, um, the the opinion read by Oliver Wendell Holmes cited uh, the supremacy cause of the Constitution that really elevated treaties above state law and, and really addressed the specifics of the arguments that had been made over the previous couple of decades identified, as Ken pointed out earlier, that wildlife was of national interest, of international responsibility, and through federal action, um, it was appropriate that um, the, the, the legislation and the, the enforcement and so on um, was the responsibility of, of federal governments. Dale, I want to, I do want to expand on that Missouri versus Holland case a little bit because it is a, it was a key milestone in, in this story. And, and yeah, it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And, you know, Holland, as you mentioned, was the federal game warden. And the attorney general of the state of Missouri had, you know, this wasn't a secret. They had kind of made it known that they were going to challenge the federal government's authority to regulate this resource. And so this was orchestrated in, in some respects. And, uh, you know, Holland arrested the attorney general and his friends, as you described. And then the part about, and I read this in the book that you and Ken um, authored there with colleagues in Missouri, uh, about you know, once the federal game warden took possession of the ducks, you know, as he had you know, cited the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and issued the, the citation to, to the attorney general and, and his friends, <laughs> then the sheriff turns around and arrests and charges the federal game warden for possessing birds in the state without a Missouri hunting license. I mean, that was classic. That's classic Missouri, isn't it? <laughs> Show me. <laughs> that, that, There's no doubt about that. And I think it's important also to point out, Mike, that this uh, occurred in the spring 
uh, again, uh, was if you're going to defy something, defy it completely. And uh, certainly that was the that was the intent. And uh, and in fact, uh, uh, McAllister actually advertised when and where they would be hunting uh, to make this the time that the states would prevail. And, you know, you see that even today with certain federal laws that are passed. You know, you, you know that some challenges to those laws are coming and, you know, the intention of those of those acts is ultimately to get it to the Supreme Court so it can be determined. And, and that's what happened. And so, yeah, it was upheld, as Dale, as you described, and, and it rested on that supremacy clause. And I found it interesting in some of my research that the that Missouri versus Holland is still cited quite often because of the precedent that it set there with regard to the, the federal government's ability to establish treaties and their supremacy over others. So, and that's something else that I, that I had probably taken for granted was the, exactly what was being argued there and uh, the basis for upholding the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And Mike, you know, we probably all take a lot of this for granted, uh, uh, but uh, the decision to move into a treaty discussion that gave the federal government this supremacy and that then in turn took away the the differences among states in terms of how they treated migratory birds cannot be overstated. I mean, that, uh, and as you said, still today, uh, when issues with regard to states' rights versus federal supremacy come up, Missouri versus Holland is quite often uh, cited. This is probably a good place for us to start wrapping up this episode. I think we've been going for about a half hour on this. We've made it to the point where the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was passed. It has been challenged and it has been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in a very famous uh, case. And now we have uh, we have the act being being ruled constitutional, or at least the treaty being ruled constitutional and enforcement can go forward. A lot of things are still yet to happen. As Dale, you talked about, That's this is where the fighting began. Uh, there continued to be some in this nature, but pretty soon the story transitions away from one of conflict and one of partnership. And that's, that's a very exciting uh, part of the story to get into. We still have a few other uh, pieces to discuss related to the you know, th- this transition phase. You have to remember that there was a significant amount of inertia in the states setting the regulations for the birds within their own jurisdictions. And in here, the federal government comes along and says, you can't do this. Well, you have to imagine that people d- just didn't stop uh, doing the things they had been doing for a number of years overnight. There continued to be you know, a lot of people that were hunting in the spring and that required some enforcement and a lot of stories about that as well that you can find. But we're going to pick up on the next episode with a transition into this new era of of partnership or the recognition or, of the need for partnership and collaboration now that we have federal jurisdiction over this resource and the state still wanting to uh, to be a participant in that process. So, uh, Dale, anything to add at this point before we close out? No, Mike, I think we've covered it. Uh, you certainly have introduced uh, the next discussion, uh, point being that, that this established the framework, uh, but the arguments that emerged after um, uh, Missouri versus Holland was that well, the convention and the treaty was not self-executing, that each partner still had to establish the rules to implement the treaty. And so over the next couple of decades after the Migratory Bird Treaty and Missouri versus Holland was when really some of the meat 
of today's waterfowl regulations um, and the, uh, the, the evolution of those regulations began. Ken, anything from you? I think we've covered this pretty well. I, w- I would just add one, one element is that this uh, uh, started to define the differences in terms of availability of this migratory bird resource in various parts of, uh, of North America. Uh, but I, th- I think overall, we've covered it pretty well, Mike. Okay, guys, that's going to wrap it up for episode two. Uh, Ken and Dale, thank you very much for joining us and and uh, welcome you back on another episode. We still have a lot of things that the three of us need to discuss. So uh, uh, thank you again for joining us here on the podcast. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, episode two in this in this series on the history of waterfowl harvest management. Dale Humberg and, and Ken Babcock, we, and we look forward to them joining us again on future episodes. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does with all of these podcasts and getting them out to you. To you, the listener, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.